Welcome to another episode in our Across the Pond series on PCC Local Time. Today, I am joined by my co-host, John Diamond, Professor Emeritus from Edgehill University in the UK. Professor Diamond has been extremely helpful to me in bringing this Across the Pond series to life. He has been a guest on the podcast before to talk about how universities and local governments might complement one another in efforts to evolve thinking and practice in the arena of local government. Today, we have three esteemed guests, Professor Krista Breum Amoy from the Copenhagen Business School in Denmark, Pam Adams, a sustainability planner from the Center Region Council of Governments in the State College area of Pennsylvania, and Jim Price, a longtime sustainability professional who is presently a borough manager for Craft and Borough outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Sustainability is a big topic, so today we are going to start off a little differently. John and I are going to provide some context, a preview and after-action review, you might say, of our conversations. If you are like me and are still trying to wrap your brain around how sustainability intersects with local government, this might help you get oriented. However, if you want to skip directly to the episode and decide later to come back and hear our analysis, I suggest you skip forward to about minute 10 and come back to this intro later. I begin the conversation with our guests by asking Krista to explain the three different ways of thinking about sustainability in Denmark. Okay, stay with us. We have put together a rich and what I think is just a fascinating and important episode for you. Be sure to check out the show notes as well for links where you can find our guests and the resources mentioned in the episode. And there are many. Thanks. Let's get started. Local government is in so many ways, a hub of activity from the outside, the elected officials or the relationship builders with the community, sensing sort of the direction that the community wants to go. And so I think about Krista coming into the mix and working with them from her research perspective. And she uses the word regenerative. And I want to point that out because it's it, her Danish may not it may not come through really strong when she introduces that idea, but it's a key idea to this episode. And the idea of talking about regenerative approaches in local government to me is a is big. It's a big idea. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I think one of the interesting things about Copenhagen in the time that I've been was still being visiting, which I guess is five or six years. A bit longer than a bit. Like some municipalities here in the UK, they are almost like reinventing what local government might look like. And I think so there's an emphasis on collaborative approaches, the emphasis on uh, multi agency working who are our partners outside just the city hall who might be working with and addressing some of those kind of big, the big issues. I don't know whether, from America's point of view, some of the, if we're doing the history lesson, I guess some of the Clinton stuff back in the early 90s was influenced by the idea about we need to address some of the kind of the systemic failures or challenges at a city level. So that I did a little bit of work quite separately on the empowerment zones that the Clinton and Gore introduced. And whether if you fast forward to 2023, some of the stuff the present, Federal government, and particularly Biden's funding infrastructure, rebuilding and invest 
is linked to a much more, it's not just about catching up with the lack of past investment, but from what I've read, it is trying to point that this is about trying to develop something that anticipates the future. I don't know enough about local government in America to know whether as to whether you could point to something which is the equivalent of what's happening in Copenhagen. That's my wonder. I, yes. I, I would love if, if listeners want to comment on that to, to write me. I do see this episode then as an invitation to mm. join mm. in this conversation that there are mm. people talking about this. Pam brings up in the episode just this sort of entry of funds that, that have been come available. Some say once in a lifetime generation that. opportunity for governments to use these funds to rethink their infrastructure and how they're organized around their governance. So in this episode, Jim is, is able to bring that boots on the ground manager yes. perspective, which we need, and the stability and predictability of local government is dependent upon that critical thinking and making good decisions. So there is this tension here that I feel in this episode that is interesting to me, but the tension is between that need for reliability in systems. So in that whole literature around collaboration and the need to break down the silos, there is also the view, and I think I've mentioned her before, Gillian Tett, who used to be the North American editor of the Financial Times, has written about this in a couple of books. Put simply, I've worked for a university. Yes, I've, I'm in favor of collaboration. I'm in favor of silos being broken down. I'm in favor of being entrepreneurial. But I want to be paid at the end of the month. I want to make sure that the finance department manages things. So it's something where you do need a whole set of skills and knowledge and understanding and systems to make sure that certain things happen. So if it's to happen once a month, they happen once a month. So it's not that everything about hierarchies and silo ways of working is necessarily bad. It's, it's the age-old question, is it appropriate? And if it's appropriate to work like that, why would you want to change it? If you can work in other ways that are more effective, then how might we do that? And it's where the silo becomes a barrier rather than enabler. I think this is pointing to a skill set that managers are very aware of, that they yes. have to really be able to balance out this need for collaboration and engagement, and yet with purpose, some clear understanding of purpose. I have this project that I'm getting into. It is a strategic planning process, but with a large group, and that I can feel this very much. It's a, there's a part of the group that really wants to get down to business and do the work, and that's the analytical work. And I'm saying, but you want to have some key conversations. That is what you want to embed into the plan so that people remember how it is you got to this place and the understanding behind it. And that is a skill that, speaking from a facilitator point of view, it takes a career sometimes, and then you're never really sure you're doing it right. Yeah. So the role of facilitation, it seems to me, is part of that is, so it's not withholding information. It's about holding the group so they can have the conversation they need to have. Mm. I thought Jim described, that's why I really like the Ohio Allegheny River, River's example, because it was, to me, it was both practical. This is real. This has to be dealt with. We have to plan for it. 
And it was an example of the, the bigger picture that we were discussing as well. Yeah. And he makes the the point, which I also love, he used the word iterative. Is that how you say? He said, you don't just do a planning process once. And and managers know this, they're, they're yes. trained that way. And yet to hear it, it just is a reminder that that you have to think about how are we going to engage that planning process this year yes. that we did last year. We have to continue revisiting. And that is a discipline that, that mm -hmm. is difficult when the, there's so much going on. Yeah, my favorite line, my favorite line in this episode is, it's not just about putting citizens in the center of attention. It's about creating and intensifying and multiplying life, which is that, again, the essence of regenerative. It's not just about giving attention to the citizens. It's right. actually about some this purpose of why you're bringing people together. What is that about? Every time we have a plan, the world changes. That just is a truth. And also, Krista said that she was trying to create a value system for experimentation in practice which is just intriguing. And I think yes. a lot of managers that are interested to explore how that might look yeah. <laughs> in a way that's safe and yeah. acceptable. And Pam talks about competing value systems, which I really appreciate. Yes. There's competing interests always going on. So when you're working with a region and multiple municipalities, there is this need to have that antenna up as to what's resonating. And I think that could be a whole nother episode. And Jim said something too that I think is important. He said that municipal managers don't see themselves as thought leaders. And, and I think that's a changing competency. I, I do think it's being understood in a new way today. But they are, in yes. fact, a thought leader. Yeah. What does that actually look like and mean in the context yes. of local government is still, I think, not clear. Yeah. Yeah. Krista, I wonder if you could start us off today by sharing the three different ways that you think about sustainability in Denmark. Yes, thank you so much, Nancy. Yeah, I think we are talking about sustainability in three different ways. One way is the conventional way of understanding sustainability, and another way is contemporary understanding of sustainability. And the last one, the third way, is the regenerative understanding of sustainability. And maybe before I try to unfold the three different perspectives on sustainability, it might be necessary to understand a little bit about why we are trying to work with the third wave, the regional understanding of sustainability. Because I think in Denmark, maybe as in the rest of the world, we are facing a lot of poly crisis in society. We have mental crisis, biodiversity crisis, food supply crisis, energy crisis. And all of these crises are interwoven and on an organizational level, we are calling them wicked problems or in Denmark, to use a Danish translation, we are understanding them as wild. And I think these wild problems or wicked problems are challenging our 
normal and traditional ways of understanding management and also sustainability. Because all of a sudden, we need to understand the problems much more interconnected and we need to understand the diversity of problems and how they were interwoven. For instance, if we're talking about uh, in Denmark, it's a very, it's an, on the agenda, we're talking about lonely senior citizens because there are more and more of this group of people and they're very expensive for society. But if we take a problem like that, it's not just about creating communities for senior citizens. It's also a matter about talking about mobility. Is there any public transport? It's also about how can we meet their expectations? How are the relations to family and etc. So a lot of problem is about having a more holistic approach to our wicked problems and thinking about the whole ecosystem. And this is why I also think that we need to have a more regenerative perspective on sustainability because it's not only about trying to fix damages that the Western world has created in nature, because that's a very mechanistic worldview. And it's also isolating problems and trying to fix them and surveilling them and controlling them. And I think that's a part of the problem that we have had this conventional and very mechanistic worldview. And then, of course, we also need to think about sustainability, about as, as understand as a business canvas or supply chain, what is coming into the organization, what is going out. But still, that's not a holistic perspective on the problems that we're facing. So the regenerative perspective is saying that sustainability is about the inner and outer integration. This is just as much a question about mental health as it is about the whole system, how it is thriving. So regenerative is not just about fixing damages, it's about asking how can we create and intensify and multiply life. So this is not about just putting the, the citizens in the center of attention for public managers or organization, but about thinking that we are part of a, a whole life system and how we can enforce that and work much more life affirming. Mm. And this is also changing, as I said in the beginning, the way that we understand public management, because then it's very difficult if, if we have a very volatile and ever-changing world that we're living in. It's very diff difficult to have a pub new public management approach. We can't just control it and fix it uh, with plans, because every time we're having a plan, then the world is changing and that would challenge our plan. So what I'm working with is trying to create, you could call it a, a value system for ex experimentations in practice, because I think we have to have much shorter learning feedbacks, because if you have huge plans and think of ourselves as social architects that are creating whole new system, that would be challenging in this world we're living in that are constantly changing. But with, if we're experimenting with smaller micro-experiments, then we are much more resilient and we can always ask ourselves, when I do this experiment, what kind of effect does it have on this part of the ecosystem? How do I, does this affect the mental health, the community, the professionals, and the society as such? 
So what I'm working with is not just trying to create the entrepreneurial state. A writer in Denmark has just written a book called The Entrepreneurial State, and everybody is talking about we need to have the entrepreneurial state. But what I think we need to have also is the entrepreneurial society because it's not only the states. So I'm trying to work with living labs where we're working with the public entrepreneurial processes, trying to empower the local area and police, thinking about that maybe they're all ready doing entrepreneurial processes and how can we intensify that and multiply that by bringing people together. And then that is also changing the idea about what is public. Because from a new public perspective, public is a service that you give to the citizens. And then the citizens often are not content with that service that they're given. And they're not, they want to negotiate the quality of this service. But from a public entrepreneurial perspective, public is not just the service. It's a process. It's a process of creating. And then the quality of creation becomes the interesting part. Can I actually feel this process? Does it make me feel that I'm part of a, a welfare process? So this is changing public into a, a verb, something that we do together, and it becomes a real felt experience. And yeah, I can talk much more about this, also how it's uh, changing the, the role of the, the, the public managers, because then it's not just about implementing a plan from A to B, and it's not also not a, only a question about coordinating position in a coordinate system and bringing people together. It's a much more creative process, almost like an alchemist trying to put different kind of ingredients into a process and never knowing what the end result is, but paving the way on while we're walking. So it becomes a creative process and also resources become something else because I think new public management is only thinking about resources from within the system and as numbers and representations, where from a new public entrepreneurial perspective, resources becomes many, what do you call it? It's many different kind of components. You can become places, communities, atmospheres, relations. And then you can begin to ask what kind of qualities and resources are in this neighborhood, in this area, and it becomes relevant to begin to map all these kind of resources and try to put the dots together and see how they can be interconnected and how they can create a qualitative, better welfare. So. The idea about what an organization is also changing because the organization is not just closing about around itself and thinking about how can I do this project or this activity to the citizen. The organization need to think about itself as something that are constantly open up to the system outside and it becomes more like I don't know if the word is right in English, but much more like smaller events or activities that are bringing people and places and qualities together. 
which again is creating a new kind of event, bringing people together and a new kind. So the organization is much more processual, processual process. Yes. Krista, it, if I might just say here, it, it sounds to me as if there's actually an emerging sort of way of understanding the work. It's not, I think you said earlier on, there are things that are already being done in local community and municipalities that could be recognized as part of this new way of thinking. And by you bringing it forward, creating a greater understanding and maybe meaning, I think some managers struggle with helping their officials or others to understand the value in the kind of event or experiment that they are attempting. And Jim could speak more to that. Also, John, you are familiar with Krista's work, and I wonder if there is something that you hear in what she has said so far that brings to mind either a question or a reflection on what she is doing with her work. I have two thoughts and two questions following uh, for what you've just said, Krista, which was really fascinating. The two thoughts are these. One is your idea of the micro. It seems to me that in everything perhaps talked about over the last 20 or 30 years in the context of sustainability, this does feel really counterintuitive. All the big policy agendas are focusing on the macro or the meso, certainly on the nation state, the region or the city. And so your uh, interest in and experience of working at the micro level, I think is really rich and fascinating. And I'd like to hear more about that. The second thought, I think, is the value that you're placing on experimentation and ways in which we can learn from that. And I think there's a, probably going to be a theme running through our conversation today about how we learn, how we apply that learning, uh, and how we think about what constitutes examples of, of good learning, as it were. I'd be really interested if you could say something more about the micro. Can you give us some more specific examples uh, of the work you've done? Yes, I think I can give one example from a living lab that we have just had in one municipality where it was about senior citizens and that the, the local politicians wanted the public organization to work with how to minimize loneliness among senior citizens. And we said, okay, let's work with this task and invite people from different areas that are related to this task into a living lab. And one of the problems that they saw was that they had five different senior activity centers in this area, in this municipalities, but they were all competing against each other because they wanted the same citizens to come into their center and they were doing uh, the, the same kind of activities to attract the senior citizens. So that was one challenge. And then we said, okay, but if we look at the local qualities at each center of these five activities centers, what are unique around every center? And then they begin, begin to listen to, taking pictures of, going out in the field in this specific place, these different kind of places. And they begin to see and listen to that there was different kind of communities around these five activity centers. 
And then they begin to have meetings, they call it uh, helicopter meetings, where also people from the church, from the elderly union, from the startups, from the culture area, were having meetings and talking about how can we intensify relations with so-called lonely senior citizens. And from those kind of meetings, new activities were popping up and were being realized. And then the, one of the challenges in, in one of the municipalities was also that the local politicians wanted to have seven opened meeting centers. But when they begin to map all these activities at the specific places, they found out we don't need seven open meeting places. There are already hundreds of relations and communities. And the question is more, how can we interconnect how these kind of uh, relations and lines of life? How can we uh, energize them? And how can we make them observe each other and use each other as a resource? So the role of the, the, the municipality becomes much more a facilitating role mapping the resources, connecting them, not building bridges because it's an ongoing movement. And of course, this was also a challenge because how to go back to the political level and said you wanted to solve this problem about lonely citizens, but your solution, creating seven places for this might not be the best solution because there are already a lot of uh, communities and relations. So it might be better to connect them in new kind of uh, ways. So maybe that could be one example, how you can work with one task and try to do a series of experiments. I, I don't want to uh, tell you now all the experiments that we were trying to ask them to do, but just in short, this was the kind of transformation that we were working with. And of course, this is also transforming the idea about what trust is, mm. because then trust is not just a matter of I'm trusting the system to providing me with the welfare service and trusting that we can co-create something together. Yeah, I think this is creating much more kind of a fluid solidarity or a resonance that the German sociology, Hamut Rosa would call it. It's a sphere of resonance that we also are creating. So this is a kind of another kind of solutions. And of course you can, this experimentation process will never end. It will always be a matter of putting these lines of life together. And the next question could be, how could you work with the green transition in this? Could some of the senior citizens also work with the nature? Could they work with O2 emissions? Or you can add more things to this kind of holistic process. Yeah. Yeah. I see Pam nodding her head, and I think that this resonates with her. <laughs> you want to? Jump in here, Pam. Yeah, I am very impressed by how Chris is able to verbalize this, right? It, it's like it, it makes sense, but it, it isn't the way it's currently happening. And some of the things that really resonates with me is this idea of keeping things local, right? So I work on a, a regional level and we have different communities that feel very much like they are different from the urban. We have a rural component as well as urban component. But I, I can see like the value systems can be a little bit different, but it's important to look at things on a broader scale 
so that you're reducing those competing interests, right? Like by looking at that example, you, you still have to look at things broadly, but also really work with the local community. So it, it's challenging, <laughs> very challenging because you have to build that trust. That's, it doesn't just start that way if they're used to certain ways. So it, it's very complicated, but I really like the idea of looking at things on a broad scale, but making sure it really resonates with that local community. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I want to ask Jim also to comment as to what resonates here. And I want to just throw in a little tidbit that both Pam and Jim, I would think would connect with the idea of mapping the community, understanding like what municipalities have, what resources and how that might better connect. I would guess that's part of your strategy, Jim, when you work on sustainability issues, policies. Absolutely. I, I think understanding the community that you're working with or the region that you're working with and the different opportunity costs and benefits that, that each one brings is very important. And I want to bring up two things that, one, that I love, and that is the, doing things at the micro scale and that, in that innovation and experimentation at that micro scale. I think that is one thing that is often lost when you're talking to municipal managers. They don't see themselves as thought leaders or people that really can change things. And I think that I, I think a group of them do, but I don't think that widely they, they often see themselves that way. But I'm, I'm reminded of one of my favorite stories that people in municipal government share, and that is they ask people, when were women first given the right to vote in the United States? And though most people will quickly say 1920 when, when we passed an amendment to allow all women to vote in the United States, but that is not the first time women were presented with the right to vote. They were first presented with that right in 1864 in Wyoming because Wyoming wanted to attract women to come to, because they had a five to one margin of men to women in Wyoming at that time. <laughs> and so they wanted to attract women and it did, it, it worked miraculously, it worked very well. But I think the story is that innovations tend to happen at the very small micro level first. And then they, t once they've been vetted and they grow and they, and it, finds out that it's acceptable about, and those are the things that start to build. So that's one thing. I think that is such an important part of what communities are able to do is that micro-experimentation that maybe a, lar a state or a county or a region can't do because they're more bound by larger constraints. And then the other thing that you were saying that I think is really a part of what I'm trying to build here in Crafton, and I think that a lot of the better managers are trying to build, and that is that Governance is a continual process, and we we do these planning processes that often involve a kind of cyclical piece, but often they, if they're not done well, they're a plan that is developed and then sits on a table and no one ever looks at it again. Done well, it's something that is revisited every year and is looked at every year and is, and is readjusted every year as you learn and, and grow from what you've discovered. I think that all of those things are really what we're talking about is we're moving into a modern municipal management or or community development. John, is anything coming to your mind? I'd really like to echo what um, both Pam and Jim have been saying about how important it is to understand the locality. And whilst I think that's probably one of those ideas that we all 
agree with and assume that everybody agrees with, it actually is quite difficult, I think, sometimes to do that um, because there will be important variations between uh, the needs of a rural community versus an urban community versus a community living within a large urban region. And the process of mapping the locality and understanding what those needs are um, will vary from place to place, time to time, context to context. And so the idea that we need to develop some holistic plan um, is, I think, and I, I guess from the conversation we've been having so far, it's agreed amongst us, is really just the first step. And it's one of those necessary but not sufficient steps. And in a way, if we think of it as an iterative process, then that might be the means by which we're able to draw in those different uh, places or levels of decision-making within a municipality, whether it's the administrative, the political, the civic, the business communities, and how we engage them and how we use them, draw on their knowledge and their insights to help us shape the kind of plans uh, that we think are necessary. Yes. I think about some of the interconnected and collaborative work that you do, Krista. You mentioned the first level of working on sort of damages as being mechanistic. And I often see in groups that are doing the planning, the strategic plans, for instance, they like this very detailed action plan. We do this, then we do this, mm. and this is the timetable. And when I come in as a facilitator, I'm focused on embedding the conversations into that plan so that people remember that conversation we had about this particular idea or how the relationships function in order to bring about change. And it's oftentimes that some people don't see the value in that. Let's just get it done. <laughs> Let's just do it. And forgetting that sometimes it takes that collaborative work, which is time consuming, but builds the relationships that makes it possible to reach out and across. I wonder if we could just talk about that a little bit, the difference between sort of the mechanistic approaches to problem solving and the more perhaps difficult elements of bringing people together to create or to connect across boundaries. Yeah, I can recognize that picture. <laughs> have had a lot of conversation with public managers about that. And I think also the conventional approach to this kind of uh, way of working, then you, you think you know what the problem is and what the solution is. So you already have fixated the problem and the solution, and you just want to fix breakdowns in the mechanistic system. But if we have wicked problems, then we don't even know what the problem is. Even the problem is something we need to negotiate and we need to figure out what is the problem exactly. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to create better solutions, it's not just a nice thing to talk about. We need to talk about the plan. No, we need to talk about what is the problem. And if we have invited the whole ecosystem to talk about what is this kind of wicked problem, then we need to take that seriously and begin to map and brainstorm not only on solutions, but brainstorm of the multiple layers of the problem. 
What, so, what does it look like when you come together, Krista? Would it be typically a group of from community talking with elected officials and managers in the same room? It depends. But when I do this uh, kind of living labs, then I invite people to join. For instance, they have this topic about senior citizens or it could be anything, rethinking what is a job center. And then we invite all the actors that are related to this problem. And then we begin to organize the conversation and begin to invite them to map all the problems that they see, but also all the potentiality they see in how to fix it. So I think strategy is changing from being merely interested in all the breakdowns in the plan to begin to have a, a new kind of mentality looking for all the the potential new ways to act. And if we begin to be more concerned about our possibilities, then it's easier to act together and it's easier to find a new pathway. And I think we need to rethink the rationality that has been creating the problems that we have by now. Yeah. So. Yep. <laughs> and it's the rationality does have a place. And let's take a moment maybe to touch on research. And Jim, you were telling the story when we were getting ready for this podcast about what it meant. Maybe you could, if you could recall that, the research that was done about the rise of the water on the, on the river, the Allegheny River. Is that what I'm, do I have the right river there? Yeah, you did. I mean, it was yeah. the Ohio, Ohio River. River. But yes. yes. I know they come yeah, together yeah. there. We'll yeah. But get that story of, of what it meant to suddenly have research that says, this is actually a problem that we do need to come together on. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's always a challenge in Western Pennsylvania to talk about climate change when we are not on the front lines of as much as some other areas of the United States. Sea level rise isn't going to affect us. Heat Island uh, has some effects, but we're not seeing the dramatic effect that you would see in a Philadelphia or in a larger, more urban area. And so some of those issues are a little harder for people to grasp and to care about. But a few years, it was 2017, we had a report that came out that was created by an alliance of folks that work across the Ohio River Basin, including all levels of government, federal, local, state. And they worked with the Army Corps of Engineers to process data from the Aeronautical Association, the U.S. Aeronautical Association, which put out their climate figures, which put out the climate prediction figures. And these are based on numbers from 2008. And it just finally got processed and put in a report in 2017. And what they show very tangibly for Western Pennsylvania, they really show this for the entire Ohio River Basin. So everywhere from St. Louis, Missouri, all the way up to Salamanca, New York, where the Allegheny River ends, that whole basin is going to see differing effects across the regions. And Western Pennsylvania in particular is expected to see, and I'm, I, don't quote me on these numbers, but they're ballpark. I don't have them in front of me, but 30% average stream uh, flow increase in, in the fall. And that's within the next 20 years. And there, we're expected to see a 50% stream increase by the end of the century. And if you think about that from a from areas that see flooding on a regular basis, we have very, I wouldn't say very, but steep. We have steep valleys and a, a lot of communities. Most of our communities started in the river valleys. And those are often the communities that have been disinvested too. So the communities that are going to suffer the most from this are the poor communities that are in the river basins or in the creek basins. And it is very clear that 
this is not something that is happening in the future. It has already started. We're seeing it now in increased water flows. We're seeing it in increased localized flooding. And those are things that municipalities deal with daily. And so it really hits home and it makes the problem less of a problem of a them problem and more of an us problem. And, and I think, and it's also very tangible. I think that's one of the other things that it's a heat island effect. You see these numbers that it will harm a certain number of people every year, but it's less clear how municipalities can affect it and what they can do immediately. Whereas, or at least in Western Pennsylvania, but here it's very clear what we can do about these water issues on top of lowering our carbon output is actually dealing with the mitigation issue on the other side of um, dealing with the problem because it's or we're, we're already going to see some level of it. It's just a matter of how much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the role of research uh, from a manager perspective and Pam and your role. How important is it for you to have access to good research to help influence the movements of your outreach and your ability to influence people and their interest in sustainability? Well, definitely very. And I'd say we're lucky that we are neighbors with Penn State University because using and working with scientists and subject matter experts at the university level, but then being able to translate that science to community members is a skill that's needed and we're recognizing the need for it. Um, It's been really important for the officials who, again, are we're all just regular citizens and we don't all understand it. But having subject matter experts that can communicate and that we have that information to Jim's point, what's happening in Western Pennsylvania, our biggest concerns are these extreme rain events and seeing it in Pennsylvania makes it resonate with our community members, right? We, we don't want that to happen in our backyard. So what can we do? And so talking to sciences and subject matter experts and learning from other communities on what they're doing to reduce and mitigate, reduce emissions and adapt to these changes that are coming is really the way that elected officials feel more secure in their policy setting, right? It's hard to be that first one that's going to do it, but if we can collectively talk about it, and they're seeing that, oh, other people are doing this too, and it, it is a best practice, and they might be willing to try it, which again gets back to this micro experiment, which I, I really like that idea because some of our municipalities, even I work mostly with six municipalities, one has instituted a stormwater fee, and that wasn't easy. But I think the other municipalities are watching to see how this works out. And they're also doing some green infrastructure because now they have funds. And so these things, I see this as a continuous loop, right? We build a little bit and hopefully each time we learn a little bit more and we bring more people in. Having that relationships with universities and really trying to get researchers out of behind their books and their documents to being able to into the community. I've found that there's many of them that are interested in that, but that's another kind of you know, it's not conventional the way we've been doing it. So it, it's a change. I think I'd like to pick up on one thing too that Pam was bringing up. Um, and I can't stress this enough. I think the difference between academia and the municipal world is one that, you know, in academia, you're encouraged to innovate and to explore and to try things new. And in the municipal world, you're 
um, not told not to, or not encouraged not to, but there's a much larger risk averse side of it because in the municipal world, if something goes bad, you might end up on the front page of the newspaper the next day because you invested poorly or your municipal leaders want to get rid of you or your municipal leaders themselves have gotten themselves into um, hot water because they took some risks. And so I think that you have one of the least risk adverse group of people exploring ideas and checking <laughs> things with one of the most risk adverse groups of people who are always fearful of ending up on the front page of the newspaper. <laughs> so That's a good picture, but I don't know, in academia in Denmark, I think a lot of academics are very concerned about they want to publish papers to a very narrow audience, and they are not like looking out in the society and thinking about themselves as being able to be a, become a driver for transformation. So I think it's very beautiful what you're explaining, Pam, also how the academics begins to help these local places, because I think that's, I think we're going to see much more of that because of all these uh, different crises that we have, that academia, we can't just have this imagination that they are planning and ordering knowledge and trying evidence for this or that. They also need to look out of the windows and doors and begin to facilitate knowledge in another way. So this hierarchy of academia here and practice there, we need to turn it around and to begin to work much more closely together. And also, I think very important to learn from place to place because it's very place specific, what kind of solutions uh, that you need. So maybe that's also a, a, a democratic potential. So that's also why I work with the Action University, because I think the university needs to become much more local and to mobilize people around necessary uh, topics. The Action University is, how do you describe that as an entity? Let me try it. Is it a school? I, I, yeah. is, is it a formal school or is it a sub part? It's trying to rethink what academia is because of, often a university, I'm from Copenhagen Business School as well, a very top ranked uh, university in the world. But I think often it, it's closing around itself. It's much more concerned about, again, publishing their own academic works and colleagues. And I think we need to ask, how can academic and academia become a driver for local change? And so I think that instead of having a campus, this is Copenhagen Business School and we're of this place, I think we need to decentralize universities and ask what kind of missions, what kind of tasks do we have in society? And then think about academics moving out there, helping the local place, solving the solution, and then write about it and publish papers. So I think we need to think rethink the role of academics, or at least some of them. Of course, not everybody needs to be uh, local community builders, but I think we need to have more. <laughs> On this topic of sustainability, can we say that it covers most every discipline at the university today? Or are there particular disciplines? If I have a young person saying, I would like to be active in the world in this, this area of sustainability. Is there a particular discipline or does it really come to life? And this is really a question for everyone. Is, are the universities embracing this as a broad initiative? What schools are most invested in a sustainable future? And it could be different from place to place. 
I just wonder what's out there. I can start in, in Denmark. I think a lot of universities uh, work with the UN goals, the SDGs, and they have a lot of policy campaigns where they write, okay, in this area, we're working with this SDG, in this area, check, check, and they have written it down. But when it comes to the mentality of having a more holistic perspective or working with it and rethinking it as something you need to do, then I think we need to do much more. <laughs> John, in the UK, do you see sustainability initiatives in the academia coming from different disciplines or are there particular areas that it's most concentrated? I think the role of universities in the context of sustainability in the whole gender on environments and sustainability is fascinating. Um, I'll say something about that in a minute, but just to add a bit of a broader context, because I think there is a link, is what I'm about to say, I hope there is, uh, between what Jim was talking about, what Krista was talking about, Pam was talking about, and a particular conversation, Monty, that you and I have had about the relationship between universities and localities in that broadest sense, but particularly municipal institutions and the practitioners and those who lead and manage municipalities. And the link is this, that it seems to me that the relationships are really varied. They're varied from university to university, from city to city. And in particular, I find fascinating is they're varied within universities. So I think you will find in some cities, in some places, very strong relationships between particular departments or units, faculties, and the locality. And that doesn't mean that there is a strong relationship between the university as a whole and the locality. And where does that leave us? It leaves us, I think, with always thinking about how we promote good working relationships between universities, academics, faculty members, and municipalities. I think if we assume that's going to happen without a bit of prodding and a bit of persuasion, I think we'll probably be disappointed. So why is that relevant to the question you asked? I think it illustrates for me that I can think of, in my own university, enormous variations across the university. So in some respects, that bit of the university that's responsible for planning, building, design is really engaged with the most contemporary and most up-to-date products, design, ways of increasing efficiency around heating, around recycling, and a particular building. One of our faculty buildings won a national award for it meeting sustainability standards. And you might think that that meant that the whole of the university was engaged in that, that particular policy question. Well, that's just not the case. But there are very strong individuals and departments or um, other area where I think it's important to look at the relationship between universities and the sustainability agenda is I think one could look at it in three ways, three lenses. So I've talked about the first one. What's the relationship like with municipalities? The second one is what are the universities like as stewards 
of the environments in which they sit, the planning, design, the buildings, facilities they use. And the third is the curriculum. And I think that's a really interesting dimension because I think you can see in different universities, and this may be true in America, it's certainly true in the UK, that the influence of the environment and the rising level of concern over the climate and the climate emergency is feeding into the curriculum issue. So you are seeing undergraduate and postgraduate courses being developed now that was the case 20 to 30 years ago. Yes, and, and uh, I think that's maybe where we could go to in these sort of final stretch of the conversation. You had said, John, in our earlier session that it's a question of different models of leadership and relationship building and that it's happening in real time. This question I ask about sustainability initiatives and where they are happening within the academic institutions, I don't think it's answerable because it's unfolding. And it's and so really where we began is talking about a new model of, of leadership and working together. And so perhaps just in this final stretch, if anyone just to offer some initiatives that you are excited about. I think in, 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 in Denmark, we have had the last two years, I think almost all of the municipalities have been working with the climate report for 2030. So everybody has committed themselves to work with this green transition and been doing their reports about how will they work with green jobs, solar energy, et cetera, et cetera. And now, all the, now they need to implement uh, these reports. And this is going to be the huge challenge the next couple of, of years because one question is also, uh, especially concerning scope three, how can we involve the citizens when we don't have the formal power to control them? So how can we involve them in ways that to balance their empowerment? So for instance, in, in Copenhagen, they have been uh, trying to engage festivals where citizens can talk about how they want to implement these reports. But also there's discussions about, is this moving fast enough? Because then it's, it's community-based solutions about the recycling clothes and everything, but it's not really about creating new contracts with the household. How can each household also minimize emissions and how can they minimize waste and how can they build up Brazilian communities? And I think a question that the municipalities are asking themselves, is it too dangerous to begin to create new social contracts with the household? Or will that turn into too much resistance from the citizens? No, we don't want to have energy in this and that way or work with the waste. And they look especially at the, the Amsterdam and the Netherlands, where there's a new local party that has have a lot of, what do you call it, a lot of new citizens voting for them. And they are against all these climate actions. So I think we are trying to balance this in Denmark, how can we involve and how can we not push too much in this new, yeah, yeah this transition? I wonder uh, maybe if, if Pam and Jim have ideas. I think about that small example, if you have a municipality, I'm imagining that festival, Krista, 
And I'm imagining now there's been some really outspoken group from a municipality that says, this is what we are doing and we're boldly going into this direction. And suddenly you have that example like you did of my Wyoming offering the vote to women. Suddenly you have people saying, that's where I want to live. That's the social contract I want to be a part of. And does that, so I'm asking both of you, do you see that as a way to, to achieve momentum where possible? Yeah. yeah, I absolutely do. I think one of the things that, that Pam was hinting at when she was talking about having that research, I think beyond just simple research, it's having case studies. It's having tangible examples of where things have worked. It's one thing to have a, a, an example that is a potential example that hasn't happened yet, that is written out beautifully on paper, but I want to know how it actually gets implemented and what were the, and what are the big things, and, and this might be a little off topic for what your question is, but what are the failures? I want to know the failures because the failures are the best. They're what we learn from more than the successes. Yeah. And I think I want to make sure that because I've seen academic papers that push a topic or an idea, one of which was from a local example, we were trying to do brick streets and we're trying to advocate for brick streets. But the research that I have from a local municipality is skewed because they used a huge assumption that they didn't really talk about. And then when I figured it out, it made the rest of the research not very useful for me. And, and I, there was something else I was going to say about this and I forget what it is, but maybe Pam will, yeah. when Pam starts talking, it'll remind me. I was listening to Jim and I was writing down case studies because I think that's very key and I want to touch on that also. But yes, I think there's a balance because municipalities want to be that leader, but they also don't want some people in their community to get too overwhelmed to have fear of what's happening is it how much is it going to cost and so i think if it's done properly and with that financial responsibility being openly discussed and having people understand the long-term benefits is what people that's the communication that needs to happen which gets to this idea of case studies if i'm in a community where there's ev chargers and more bike paths might feel really good to a lot of people, but is it good for business? Is it good for the community members? And there's multiple ways to measure that, but there are currently, at least I'm sure there are, and I've read some things, but we are not sharing that information out enough to make more businesses more secure. A lot of businesses still believe that having a parking spot right in front of their business is the best option. And I have seen some research, but they're not going to believe it the first time, right? Like it maybe that happens in California or that happens in Denmark, but this isn't Denmark power. So I think those case studies, and it's actually a project that we're trying to work with Penn State with some students to look locally because we have communities now that are more bike friendly and that have solar. How can we localize those case studies to show what, and what are the metrics? Like, do you have to identify what's important to, to measure and how do we measure a more sustainable community, right? If, it, if everything seems good and happy, is it good and happy for all? Is it maybe one business closes, another one comes? So it, it's not easy, but I don't think we, I don't think in the sustainability world, we have enough case studies yet um, and local ones. Again, I will say people that do it in California, people in Pennsylvania are like, that's California, that's not us. 
Yeah, and you reminded me of what I was going to say, so thank you. <laughs> and that is that oftentimes when I was working for Sustainable Pittsburgh, and, and I would say that's probably going to be true for me here too, we don't necessarily need to uh, illustrate every thing that we do as a method to uh, reduce climate change or to improve climate change outcomes. Because there are a lot of people that that is not a first, second, or third care of theirs. And, and it might be even something that they're against. So if you talk about the other benefits that come with a lot of these solutions, that really, and frankly, of many of the benefits that a municipality of our size or even a region of PAM size can accomplish are things that are not necessarily thought of as first thing, first changing the transportation mix, making more walkable communities. You can pitch those things as economic developers because they are incredibly effective at increasing economic development. And those are things that everybody cares about. Economic development, it, except for maybe a few radical people, pretty much everybody agrees with it. So if you focus on those things and focus on the things that improve lives of families, improve children's lives, improve elderly lives, improve every, everybody's lives. Those are just, we have a local organization here that works on issues for aging populations. And one of the things they always talk about is what's good for an eight-year-old and good for an 88-year-old is good for everybody. And, mm -hmm. and pushing those types of topics. And they also are going to benefit climate change, but that's not my focus when I talk about those things. Yeah, some wonderful thoughts. But I'm also thinking that there's, this is about a power game in, in some sense, at least in, in, in Denmark, because I can see that communities that are proposing new kind of projects, for instance, with wind energy or solar energy, when they propose it, it's not going to go through the government because they see it as the community are getting too much power. They would rather has it, have it as a meter governance project with foreign uh, international investors instead of having a smaller project on this island, for instance. So I think also it's not just a matter of what is green or what is good for the social thing. I think there's, there was also sometimes some kind of power plays in this. What kind of partners do you actually want to have? And maybe I also think, of course, it's really good to have the cases and case studies. Uh, but sometimes I think they don't see how every solution is place-based and they don't ask how can we involve the local citizens because I think engagement and empowerment is also very important if we want to have a more holistic approach. So instead of just wanting to have one case and then putting it all over the plate, I think we, we need to have some methods instead to generate local engagement and relations able to create new kind of ecosystem. So yeah, that's what I am concerned for or interested in. Yeah. And I'll just add real quickly that I think Krista brings this totally new perspective that makes a lot of sense when I hear her say it. So it's great. You're ahead of us. We're embracing sustainability and I'm sure we're more at the conventional and temporary level, but to be looking at the regenerative, like I, I can see some of the processes that we're going through that I'm like, oh, and I really believe in stakeholder engagement, which is really the, the gist of what you're saying. But that is a, a lot of work and it's uncomfortable for people, but I see that value in it. And so I'm, I'm very excited about the, we can learn from each other across the pond, but that's really key to be looking forward and trying to get more people involved.
One of the things I think has emerged listening to the conversation now is how central trust is and how important it is that there are considered and deliberate steps taken to build trust and confidence in what's being discussed and what might then be enacted. Part of that is the points that Jim made, which is really important. People have to have confidence in the evidence base. They have to have confidence in what's been identified as a challenge or issue or what the potential solution might be or range of solutions. And that process of developing a shared conversation at which there is respect, but also a shared understanding is not easy. And yet it's so necessary. And it's necessary because building that evidence base will need to draw upon, and you make a really important point, Joe, will need to draw upon those things that haven't worked as much as those things that have. And it's how we learn from both of those, which I think is really important and quite possibly a separate podcast in itself, actually, which is the process of taking something and then recognizing it and value you, but trying to work through how you apply that and how you make sense of that in the context that you're in. And it may be that one of the ways that we think about that is trying to think about, do we have a shared understanding of what the, 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 the objective or the goal is? I think, Krista, what you were saying about the regenerative approach to sustainability is really helpful here because it suggests that there's more than just um, dealing with what appears to be the presenting issue. There's something about way in which there's a real value to a locality and individuals within that. If we think in terms of the holistic approach, not easy, but maybe that's a step that we need to take. I wonder if you could each maybe share a resource or an author or something that has been important to you in guiding your thinking or your ability to understand a way forward. Now, I'm going to just start by saying that this, Krista's work, I'm hopeful that we're going to get more of that to share because I think that for me is something that I would say is very helpful in putting together these ideas. And so I thank you so much for opening up this resource to all of us. Yeah. What was, has been inspiring to you, Krista, and in, in looking for uh, either through an author or a resource that you look to for your own ideas? Oh, there are so many things, but maybe in this company, I'm thinking about the Glasgow Energy Lab. Maybe you could mm -hmm. look for that. It's a community in Glasgow that uh, has created their own company or their own NGO, and they're putting up solar energy on the rooftops of uh, public buildings. And this is, yeah, it's so inspiring to see how they're uh, doing it together and how they're creating communities and learning platforms for children and involving people. And I think that's could maybe be an interesting case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then uh, Laura Sohn, uh, I don't know if you know her, regenerative uh, leadership could be one 
And another one, the last one for me, could be Tim Inga, Lines of Life. He's from UK and an anthropologist talking about the necessity of bringing lines of life together. Wow. That sounds like one for me. I would enjoy that, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. So I would say the Clean Energy to Communities program, so the World Resource Institute, is a good resource for me when trying to look at some of these things. And these, this clean energy to communities program is the National Renewable Energy Lab is putting it together. And so I'm, this is my second cohort. They create these cohorts with communities across the nation. And we talk about a certain topic. I'm in one right now for electric vehicle infrastructure. So the idea is learning from and talking about some of the problems. And there's always like, you know, the subject matter expert that explains, you know, some suggestions have been very helpful for me. And I will say that they're, I've applied for the next one, which is community engagement. So I'm hoping to participate in that one, but they do a lot on explaining how you should be into your community and talking to your community. So that's a good one. And then I'm a big fan of podcasts. So I, uh, I'm, I'm excited to be on one. But I know that the City Climate Corner is a podcast that I listen to a lot um, because they go into communities and talk about what is Ann Arbor doing and and specific things. So it's very helpful at at the local government level to hear about some other ideas that people are doing to embrace sustainability. Mm. That's a new one for me. Thanks, Pam. That's good. How about you, Jim? I would be remiss if I didn't say the state programs that do sustainability. (laughs) So I used to work for a program uh, across the state, Sustainable PA, that is a great resource for PA municipalities, but there are also 15 or so other states that have programs that are similar that I think are very useful because they're adapted to the local use. They're adapted to the laws that are available to pass and move through in, in those given states. So I think those are important and really and nice thing about those is they're very tangible. I come from a, I was in the sales background for a while and I'm always reminded that if you hand someone a product, they are 75% more likely to buy it. And I equate that in this world to if you hand someone a tangible idea, they are much more likely to embrace it when it's understandable and clear and lucid and they can compare it to their own existence. They understand it in their own environment. So I think those are just separate re- recommendations. I think still one of my favorite, I, th- I feel like my some of my recommendations are going to be stale on this because I've been so focused on my, my, my transition to managing. So I've been less focused on the sustainability stuff for the last year and more focused on just becoming a better manager as a whole. But with that being said, I think Paul Hawkins' first book, Ecology of Commerce, is still a book that I think everybody should read because it talks about the different ways in which there's opportunity costs that are lost and how to and really build up a system that that works for everyone and benefits everyone without, because I think the general theme of anti-environmentalism that has happened in the past has always been like, you're going to cost too much money by doing this or this. And I think we're going to cost, and I think the America is a perfect example. We're going to, we're going to be lost if we don't embrace this now and move forward because while countries like China are moving fast on, on renewable energy and on other community development issues, we need, and I, I'm not saying China's not a model, but I am saying that we definitely need to move more quickly to do, to research in this area. 
because we were at the front of the industrial revolution, but we're not at the front of this revolution. And if we're not at the front of this revolution, then we're going to be, we're going to be stuck. Just put that there. <laughs> wow. Yep. How do you top that? That's yep. said Jim. <laughs> John, I don't know if you have uh -huh. any follow-up thoughts on these. So you're asking for examples. So my two examples of people I would reach out to, one is Professor Tom Breyer, Mercy Central Florida, who's been a past participant on this podcast series with Nancy. He's been involved in Orlando in a project which has been measuring air quality. And it's been a project which has brought together local citizens and the municipality. And I think there's something really interesting about what's coming out of that project, which I think perhaps Perm and Jim may find really helpful, really interesting, and you too, Chris. The other person that I would um, talk to, I think, or reach out to, uh, not because of the question of sustainability, but because of the importance of leadership and the relational dimension of that and the importance of working in a holistic way, multi-agency way, is Christy Doherty, Dr. Christy Doherty at the University of Edinburgh. Her research has been all about how municipal officers and senior leaders in different professional settings work together, learn from each other, and apply some of those principles and practices of, of collaboration. And I, I think that would be of real value to all of us whether it's the wild or the key problems that we were talking about. I think her research is very current and very contemporary. And I think she has a lot to offer. Yes, she's going to be on. We, yeah. We're working on that. It, these are great recommendations. And I am so excited to pull this episode together. All of you just have brought so much today to think about. And you've inspired me. And this is not an area that I am totally comfortable with. As I said to all of you, I felt from the very beginning that it's so big. How do you wrap your brain around it? But you've all given me some really wonderful ways to think about it. So I hope that we can work more on this other ways. So thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you very much. That's, thank, yep. thank you yep. for having us. Yeah, it was wonderful, Krista. We'll be in touch. It's we'll be in touch. Thank you for now. Good yes. to see you, everybody. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Perfect. Okay. Bye. See you. Bye bye. bye, -bye. I'm trying to <laughs> leave session. I won't you... leave. I won't leave. <laughs> can you throw me out? I know. Yeah, I think I can. It, it's, it's like it's not working, this pink yeah. thing.